the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. John Cryan. John is a professor and chair of the Anatomy and Neuroscience Department at the University College Cork in Ireland. His lab studies the microbiota gut-brain axis in health and disease, and we touched on a range of topics related to how the gut microbiome affects the brain and body, including how the microbiome affects aging and immunity, such as what happens when you actually transplant the microbiome from a young individual into an older one, how the microbiome affects social behavior, including potential links to autism, how antibiotics and the general hypercleanliness of the modern world impacts our microbiomes, and things like how the microbiome affects neuropsychiatric conditions like depression, as well as how diet influences brain inflammation. Towards the end, John also shared an interesting example of a food that he consumes for gut health, and we touched on a variety of topics in this general space of the gut microbiome and how it connects to the brain and general health. As always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you're listening or watching, if you're watching the video version on YouTube. There's also a variety of links in the episode description that go to places like my Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com, where you can find both the podcast and some of my long-form writing related to topics that I cover on the show. You'll also find links to a few different products and services that I use and recommend. And if you have a minute, I encourage you to check those out. They're pretty interesting, and anything that you purchase through those links will directly support the podcast and help keep it going. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Professor John Cryan. <music> Professor John Cryan, how are you? I'm good, Nick. Um, can you tell everyone where you're calling in from and, and what you do scientifically? Yeah, so I'm calling in today from Cork. Uh, which is the second city in Ireland, right at the very south of Ireland. And I'm a neuroscientist, uh, of course, but I am intrigued by how um, the microbiome uh, in, in our gut influences our brain and behavior. Interesting. And so is that basically what's referred to by this term microbiome gut brain axis? 
Exactly. That's, you know, this axis is now becoming part of the mainstream aspects of physiology now. We, we always had a gut-brain axis, uh, and it's in the last two decades that there's become a greater appreciation that there's another component to it uh, and, and that the microbes are actually key to how the gut-brain axis uh, works. What, uh, what is the gut-brain axis? What, is it, what are the, the physical connections mediating how the, the gut and the brain communicate? Yeah, so, I mean, this is, um, uh, we know a lot about this from basic you know, physiology going back to Pavlov's time, you know, about understanding about, uh, about how our gut is talking to our brain. Um, and we use it in our language, you know, the gut feelings aspects of it. Uh, the main pathways of communication uh, between our gut and our brain are neural. So that will involve through the, for example, the vagus nerve. Uh, vagus comes from the same uh, derivation as words like um, vagrant and vagabond. So it co- means wandering. Mm. And so this is a long wandering nerve, one of the cranial nerves. Um, and vagal signals go in two directions, uh, to the brain and, 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 and from the brain to all the organs, including the cost. Uh, we also have spinal mechanisms uh, and th- 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 that are at play. And within the gut, from a neural perspective, we have what's called the enteric nervous system, the ENS, and this is the the the, the second brain, uh, as Mike Gershon uh, at Columbia once uh, wrote a book about. Uh, and uh, we have more nerves in the second brain than we do in our spinal cord. And so, so, so this is the this uh, enteric nervous system plays a key role in how the gut functions from a basic digestion physiology aspect, but also more recently we began to appreciate how it could be playing a role in sending signals to the brain and modulating aspects of a variety of things, including interoceptive signals and, and, and to help us feel how we feel. And, um, so, the, so the, that's the large component, which is a neural one. And then on top of neural components, we have a hormonal component. So we have lots of um, uh, cells in the gut that, that, that release hormones, intraendocrine cells. Um, and these can either uh, affect the neural signals or they can, some of them can, can also uh, 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 affect other targets uh, to, to get to the brain. And so this has been very much studied in the context of feeding behavior. Uh, because feeding is, we need a system in our body to tell us when we're hungry. And so we need to, to understand within the gut brain axis that there's hormones being released in advance of hunger and also hormones being released to tell us to stop eating. And the, these are evolutionary wired. Um, so that's what, that's a, a second component of the gut brain axis. The third component of the gut brain axis is the immune system. Mm. And we've all got very familiar about our immune systems in the last two years. Uh, but uh, immune signals, uh, you know, the, uh, with our gut is, is, is the reservoir of, of, of some of, our, of, of the highest levels of uh, immune cells. And they traffic to different places and they're able to, to uh, become activated in response to certain injury or infection or various systems and, and are able to help communicate uh, across the body and even into the brain uh, overall. Um, so they're, they're the, the major, uh, what I would say, components of the gut brain axis. And then on top of that, we have the microbes. They, um, and they microbiome then can interact with each of these pathways mm. in different ways um, and complicated ways that we're still trying to 
really work out to influence brain and behavior. Interesting. So this enteric nervous system, you said that there's actually more neurons in this nervous system of the gut than in the spinal cord. Yes. And my uh, my gut instinct would be that they're mostly involved in uh, uh, moving moving uh, the food through, causing causing the movements that actually uh, yeah peristalsis have- and 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 motility in, in in general, and that's you know that's what they're the they're one of their main fashions of uh, the main roles are, but it also plays a role in things like abdominal pain. Mm. When you get cramps and you get, uh, if you have uh, irritable bowel syndrome, which is a, a disorder we study, uh, which is a very unloved disorder. No one wants to talk about, you know, the center for, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. We don't have donors lining up to give us money to do that, but it is a very common and disabling disorder, uh, which has the enteric nervous system at its uh, uh, real uh, foundations in terms of what's going wrong and how that pain is processed. It's processed through, through also through spinal mechanisms into the brain. And so everything is connected. I see. Interesting. So, so the the enteric nervous system is not only moving the food through, but it's doing some kind of pre processing that, that then gets shuttled up to the brain. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is just a general area of discussion is the connection between the microbiome and this gut brain axis and aging and immunity. And I know that that you and others have done experiments that center around something called a fecal transplant. And the basic idea is you put a young mouse's microbiome into an old mouse and interesting things happen. So very broadly speaking, how do these experiments work and what are some of the, the high level changes that you guys observe with respect to aging and immunity? Okay. No, Grace. Great question. So, I'll rewind a little bit just to give listeners a, a little bit more context about, about why we would think about doing this in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so what my lab is really interested in doing is understanding this relationship between the microbiome and the gut-brain axis at key windows across the lifespan. So we have programs in early life in the perinatal period, in adolescence, and all the way into, into old age. And buoyed by experiments in humans that my colleagues here in Cork did, oh, it's almost a decade ago now, where they showed in a project called ElderMet, that elderly individuals who tended to live in nursing homes and um, assisted living, um, that their microbiomes um, had a reduction in diversity um, as they aged. And um, this correlates um, frailty and other health outcomes. So the people who lived in the community then who had um, very much diverse, more, more diverse microbiomes had less frailty. And so, so and, and they went one step further to show that it was driven by diet. So the people with the more diverse diets had the more ha, had the most um, diverse microbiome than, and were less likely to be frail. Now, so that was kind of interesting, but I'm a neuroscientist, so I was a bit disappointed there was not a lot there wasn't a lot of neuroscience in that study, even though it was in nature, but it was it, it didn't have it wasn't uh, driven from a cognitive or um, uh, neuroimmunology perspective. There, there was a, a peripheral immune measures. Um, but we were kind of excited about it, and it, rem- uh, it reminded us of Eli Metchnikoff's work 
at the turn of the last century. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Eli Metchnikoff, Nick. Okay. No. And, and Eli Metchnikoff is, um, you know, it's, it's kind of timely. He was a Ukrainian Russian um, working in Paris who um, won the Nobel Prize in 1908 for discovering the process of what we call phagocytosis. So the gobbling up the immune, immune cells do of foreign bodies. And so, um, and so he was he was a brilliant father of immunology, you know, brilliant guy. Uh, and maybe as happens some, or actually quite a lot of great scientists later on in their careers, they can start to come up with crazy ideas. <laughs> and Metchnikoff was really full of crazy ideas. Uh, most of them complete nonsense. But one of the things that he, he when he turned 50, which in at the turn of the last century was you were getting old. He got started to get worried about aging and he started getting worried about his own, his own mortality. And he really was getting, you know, wondering why, uh, how can I do something about this? And so he started looking around in populations where people seem to live longer and healthier. And this brought him to parts of what's now rural Bulgaria. And what he found was that people who lived there ate, uh, uh, that lived longer, uh, ate a lot of fermented foods containing lactic acid bacteria. So he put forward the idea over 100 years ago that it was healthy aging could be driven by lactic acid bacteria and is really the father of probiotics. And, you know, if you go to Korea, you can get a, a yogurt drink with Metchnikoff's picture on it. So, you know, it must have that Nobel sign of approval. It must be good for you. But anyway, uh, as I say, most of what he talked about was nonsense. And so he was ignored. And most of this was ignored for 80 years. But you can read about it. He wrote a book about it, about the, uh, uh, you know, optimistic studies on, on, on aging. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because sometimes in science we, we uh, you know, are just reinventing wheels that have been turned already. We're, we're inventing them with technologies now that can advance that. So Metchnikoff then is a father of lactic acid bacteria and probiotics. And so he's well known if you're an immunologist or a microbiologist. I I'd never heard of him until I started reading these studies as a neuroscientist, but um, it, 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 buoyed by the studies from my colleagues here in Cork uh, on the people in the nursing homes, uh, and with this Metchnikov idea, we started revisit. What I wrote a paper called "Revisiting Metchnikov," which was really about looking at using aged animals, mice in this case. We looked at what's going on in their brains, what's going on in their um, their uh, behavior, and how is that linked to what's going on in their microbiome. And we found quite a number of what I would correlations, but it's just correlations. Mm -hmm. So it, it matched kind of what we were seeing in the human studies that the microbiome seems to correlate with some of the behavioral changes and with some of the, some of the uh, uh, brain changes, but we needed to go one step further. And so in a study that we followed it up with, we said, could we target the microbiome um, in aging and through diet would be the best way? Uh, and could we slow down some of the effects of aging? And so we used a diet that was um, enriched in inulin. Now, inulin is a fiber present in lots of vegetables, chicory, leeks, uh, artichokes, uh, etc. And uh, what and for these studies, then I turned to um, middle-aged mice because I started getting very interested in the middle-aged brain myself for obvious reasons. And uh, they're already in middle-aged mice, you start to see neuroinflammation happening in the brain as a harbinger of 
later, uh, perhaps degeneration. And so what we found was when we fed the animals this inulin-enriched diet, that they didn't have this neuroinflammation in their brains. And that was really cool because now we see that by feeding microbes, we could actually slow down the effects of aging. But we, it wasn't definitive in terms of the diet could be having direct effects on the brain independent of the microbiome. How do you know? How did I know? And, the, you know, I was asked this question many times. How do you know it's the microbes? So that led to the study that you're alluding to, which was this kind of killer study that we wanted to do, which was kind of a proof of concept. Well, what if we took the microbes from young animals and gave them to older animals, which have a different microbiome? Could we reverse. Now, this was the real killer part of it because we went to old animals, 22-month-old animals. Could we reverse the effects of aging on brain behavior and immunity? And that was really, you know, an experiment that I told the postdoc, this is not going to work, you know? <laughs> we, we have to do it. Uh, and so we took advantage of fecal transplants approach, which you alluded to, which is exactly what it says on the 10. It means taking something, some other individual's poo and transplanting it. In this case, it's from one mouse to another. And um, I'll just stall and, and just explain to your listeners what fecal transplants uh, have got some attention in the press over the years. Um, and, and they're seen as something quite new, but they go back to ancient China uh, and the, where they were used in the treat, treatment of, um, uh, of, of all sorts of ailments. It was called a yellow soup uh, uh, in Chinese medicine. Um, and uh, they've been revelationary in modern medicine in treating certain forms of infection, most notably Clostridium difficile. C. diff kills people and it's antibiotic-induced uh, uh, infection. And what studies from um, the Netherlands almost 10 years ago, again, showed that uh, there was a 95% uh, success rate uh, in uh, individuals that had been given a fecal transplant uh, for this in, in infection. And so I'm, you know, I, I I work in a medical school. There aren't that many areas of medicine where you can say there's 95% success rate for anything. So that brought fecal transplants back into the mainstream in humans. Wait, so, uh, so and now, I just want to make yeah. sure I'm understanding. So I've been asked this before and I don't know the answer. So I, I have to ask, how, how are these transplants physically conducted? Oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah, sure. And so then what, you're saying that, that in this particular example, there was some sort of antibiotic effect? So, so no, I, I mean, I, so, so, so the, in, in the initial, in the human studies, what, what, what happens, they're used to treat predominantly Clostridium difficile, which is, which is an antibiotic. It's caused by overuse of antibiotics. It's, a, it's an infection that becomes resistant to antibiotics. Mm. And so your antibiotics don't work. So it's basically will kill you in hospital. It's basically a hospital acquired infection that will people die. All over the world, people died today uh, from it uh, in Western worlds. Uh, and because it's caused by antibiotics and you try and treat it with antibiotic, the, you, you reach a stage where, you know, something has to change. And what you do then, what the, the studies with the fecal transplants do is, well, what if we can get rid of the microbes and put new microbes back? And, and will that work? And so in terms of the physical purposes of doing it, there's really only two ways you can get to the colon. 
You can go either go down in a nasogastric tube or you can go up in an enema. And that's what people, how people deliver this um, overall. And, um, but the success rate was, was, was just dramatic. And now it's been ch- tried in all types of different illnesses. Um, uh, there's ongoing programs in depression and in, in anxiety, also in, in obesity, in uh, inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome, um, mixed effects. You know, it's not going to be the, the cure-all. Uh, what a lot of people are also looking at is, well, could we come up with a more innovative way of delivering this disruptive medicine? So there's a, a products like uh, crapsules, uh, which are basically, you know, uh, poo that's been uh, put into pill formats. Um, and this is gaining a lot of attention uh, from an innovation perspective. But is it so, just like, is it like a purified preparation of some of the bacteria? That- no, well, you can do that. And some groups are doing that. So there's a group in Arizona that are doing that with a, with a consortium of about 100 bacteria. What what people are really looking at is, is just from from donor, from, you know, fresh it's remarkable. Interesting. So the idea is just you're you're putting in other bacteria that then outcompete the one yeah. that you don't want there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And they they can grow over and they can you know whatever else. And so and and so in the C diff world, in Clostridium difficile work, it works. And in in outside of that, the you know the the it's more uh, equivocal, shall we say? Yes. But we we need more studies. Um, but with that knowledge of clinical medicine and how this is working, that fecal transplants are moving into the mainstream in such a way that almost all Western hospitals nowadays will be performing fecal transplants regularly. Um, uh, Then it becomes a more viable approach to use uh, in our animal models uh, as well, because it has a translational potential uh, overall. So that led us then to think, well, could we do this in our aging animals? Could we take the microbes from uh, young animals and give it to the aged animals and reverse the effects of aging. And um, quite remarkably, and to to my surprise, many of the effects we had seen uh, were were changed uh, at the level of the gut, at the level of the immune system, at the level of the metabolome. So that's the chemical um, makeup of the region of the brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory. And we were able to reverse some of the age-associated behaviors. And so we published that in Nature Aging. We got on the Steve Colbert show joking about it. He he made jokes about our studies at the time. It was kind of uh, one of these uh, papers that you know, uh, got a life of its own. Um, it, uh, it, it, it was really important to show, you know, the next steps from our earlier work where we could go, but it asks so many questions. Mm-hmm. And before your listeners all try and rush out now and start stealing the poo from infants, that is not what I'm saying. Uh, and, and that's not where this research is really advocating really what we're, what it tells us is that it, gives us some really good evidence, at least in a mouse, that the microbiome uh, needs to be looked after as we age for to engender healthy aging, to engender our brains for healthy aging. And, uh, you know, we need to look at ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, you know, where, you know, w- w- where it's at rather than the, the fecal transplant was, w- was a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Another way I could have imagined exploring the necessity of the microbiome for some of these diet-induced effects would have been to give the mice what you mentioned earlier in terms of diet, but 
sort of nuke the microbiome with antibiotics first. Has anyone ever done something like that? So, so, so yeah, not, 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 not to the same way in, in aged animals that I'm aware of. Um, the, we were thinking of doing that, but we were a bit worried that aged animals are very expensive and they, mm. they, they, they may not respond to the toler antibiotics are quite a, you know, there's a tolerance effect. So, yep. so th that needs to be done. And that would have been the cool experiment uh, that we, we're still on our list of things that we should do. Um, but it's going to be, there's going to be other collateral effects of antibiotics in the gut in terms of energy absorption and food, you know, that's going to complicate things, mm -hmm. uh, that, that could be in, give you indirect effects. So the way we did it, I think was probably the most, uh, indicative that, that it is actually the microbe because the only two differences between these two old animals is that one has got the microbes from a young animal and we gave the other, the microbes from an old animal, you know, from mm -hmm. an old animal. So, so we were able to, you know, uh, control for the transplant itself. And so when you do this, the old mice have brains that start to look younger in effect. And so what does that actually mean? What are some of the markers that differentiate the, the younger looking versus the older looking brain? Yeah, so we, we looked at a variety of different ones. So the, 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 the really intriguing one for me was the metabolome in the hippocampus. So, the, so this is using mass spectrometry, you know, to look at uh, what are the chemicals uh, in the uh, in the brain uh, that are being formed. And, uh, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of chemicals. And uh, we were able to use this approach then to see um, you, you, which ones were, were, were changed with aging and then which ones were reversed. And there were quite a lot uh, that were that were sensitive to the fecal uh, uh, transplant, and so that was kind of really cool because some of these may originate in the gut because one of the things about the gut microbiome is that it's like a little factory producing all kinds of weird and wonderful chemicals that our bodies wouldn't have otherwise. And some of these chemicals can get into the circulation, get across the blood-brain barrier, and into the hippocampus. So, so that was. That, that was quite uh, intriguing. We also looked at microglia. Microglia are the brain's immune cells. And we found, the, uh, again, the, that they're, they're, as the brain ages, there's, there's a, there comes an increased activation of microglia. And this, the, the, there was a diminution of this when we gave the transplant. Um, we did look at other things that didn't change. So not everything changed. So we, mm -hmm. we, we're really interested in a process in, in the hippocampus called um, adult hippocampal neurogenesis, which is the birth of new neurons that occurs throughout the lifespan. And, you know, it, it starts to get less and less as we age. And, and so we found the age effect, but it was still there. The, 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 the transplant wasn't able to recover these new neurons uh, to be more. So not everything changed, but uh, quite a lot of things did. And then on behavior, we found uh, that they they uh, when we put the mouse in a maze, in particular a Morris water maze, so it's basically a spatial learning task. Uh, they were able to find the hidden platform uh, and develop a strategy uh, again, similar to younger animals uh, mm -hmm. when they had been given the transplant. Mm -hmm. And I suppose one of the things that's interesting here is the fact that you see this effect means, at least for some of these things, the. Um, because you're able to reverse some of these inflammatory markers and even behavior and things like that, it's not like the aging process has just sort of accumulated over time that some of the stuff actually is acutely reversible. That was, and, I, that seems surprising. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and for me too. It, it, you know, it reminds us that the brain is so plastic. It reminds us that there is so much potential uh, for this, and it reminds us that it's never too late to to focus on 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 on, on doing these things. Mm-hmm. And when you do these um, microbiome transplants, so in this case, you're going um, putting the young microbiome or the microbiome from the young mouse into the old mouse. You see these remarkable effects. Does that new microbiome is it stable or does it revert passively back yeah, to the old version? Yeah, no, a, gr- a great question, and we don't know. We didn't do them experiments yet. Uh, get, again, getting aged mice costs us a fortune because we don't have a, a National Institute of Aging here in Ireland that, that can deliver these to us. And so, so uh, uh, you know, we were. We, we, it, it, it is an important aspect to know. Uh, you know, in terms of do you have to keep doing? We did give them boosters twice a week during all of the testing that was going on. So just to ensure that we got some uh, engraftment continue. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just, I mean, when you look at the, when you look at the mice, do they, do they look healthier just yeah. visibly? Not, not really. I mean, when we, you know, not really, we didn't see a huge, um, now they are quite healthy and, and, and it's one of the functions of, of, of working with aged animals is that you work with, with healthy aging animals anyway, because if the animal starts to deteriorate, you have to, to, for, uh, um, humane reasons, you have to, 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 sac- you know, to, to sacrifice air, uh, the, you know, when you start seeing, um, yeah. uh, anything, uh, going wrong. So, so they weren't that visibly aged, you know, they weren't. Unfortunately, they had no walking sticks or glasses or anything that we could look at that would be able to <laughs> tell them or, 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 or they were going for early bird menus or anything, you know. Um, and so what about what about effects in the periphery, in the enteric yeah. nervous system or, or inflammation markers there? So again, peripheral immune, immune markers, we, we did a whole panel of different peripheral immune markers and it was somewhat selective, um, but it was, it was really there that, that, that a lot of the aging or induced effects were sensitive to it. And, 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 and that makes sense. And, you know, we have this process uh, that's been coined inflammaging. Um, and it's basically as we age, you know, our immune systems. And, and that's why, you know, during the pandemic, we were so focused on keeping our vulnerable people over, you know, 80 initially, and then down to over 65, because their immune systems are just not able to tolerate uh, things. And so uh, we were able to, to push back some of these signs of aging uh, in the peripheral um, uh, and locally in the gut immune system as well. So, so that, so that was kind of cool. You know, um, again, we don't know what's driving what first. We don't know is it the immune you know, if you reverse the immune, it does that have, is that what's causing the knock-on effect? And we'd like to dig into the pathways that might be at play here. And, 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 and we really need to invest in more effort in that. One of the, um, you know, one of the things here that's, that's obviously interesting is you're, you're seeing these effects at all, and it goes all the way into the brain stuff is getting all the way into the brain and having behavioral effects. I know that there's also been some work linking the microbiome to social behavior in animals. So starting wherever you think is, is uh, most appropriate. What have, what has the link been so far between the microbiome's ability to modulate social behavior? Okay. So yeah, this is a really intriguing uh, topic. And one I, 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 I'm quite excited about in terms of where we could go with this. Um, in 2013, so it's almost, yeah, we showed um, in mice that lack microbes. So, so, so 
So uh, let me rewind. So I've been talking about this microbiome gut brain access for quite some time. And my neuroscience colleagues are a good skeptical bunch of people, you know? And so I can talk about correlations and I can talk about gut feelings and I can talk about things, but they really like, you know, they want mechanisms and they want more evidence that something is, you know, that the microbiome. So a decade ago, you know, we first published in 2011 showing a specific strain of bacteria could have effects on brain and behavior through the vagus nerve. And that got a lot of attention and, um, um, it was kind of one of the breakthrough moments for for me in 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 terms of really getting good evidence that this was this was relevant. But it wouldn't, you know, we needed more data. And so, how do you get more data that something is important to a process? Well, you take it out and see what happens. And so that's why I always say to my to my neuroscience colleagues is that that you know here's here's some really hard data. If we take microbes out uh, of mice. And we have a germ-free facility here in Cork. Um, and we look at the brain and behavior of these animals. Then we start to get an idea of, is the microbiome involved? Yes or no. And early work out of Japan showed that the, the microbiome in, it was involved in, in, in stress response. Work from um, Karlinska, from Russia Lestia's Heights, and from Jane Foster and McMaster. And our own group um, showed that uh, brain development and variety of brain processes were gone awry uh, in these um, germ-free mice, especially in the context of anxiety behavior. And then in, in 2013, we looked at social behavior and we found that mice have that are growing up without microbes have clear deficits in both social um sociability and and social cognition so sociability is basically when we give the mouse the opportunity to spend time with a another mouse or an object it'll gravitate a normal mouse will gravitate towards the mouse they're social they want to spend time but not a germ-free mouse uh, also then for social cognition we want the animal to be able to distinguish between its everyday playmate and a new playmate and um, mice will gravitate towards a new playmate. So they're, you know, fickle, like maybe some humans, but they are, they are quite fickle in that regard, uh, but not if they're germ-free. And so this was really important data for us to show at the time that if you're lacking microbes in your gut and you're a mouse, that you're having different social experiences uh, overall. So that really got me excited. Um, and at the, we did a lot more digging into the mechanism than this. We showed that in these germ-free animals that they have deficits in their amygdala in terms of the arborization of the amygdala, which is key brain area involved in, in, um, in social behavior. Uh, in the prefrontal cortex, which is also very much part of the social circuit, we showed that there was increased uh, myelination. Uh, and people think about myelination in the context of multiple sclerosis, where it's a demyelinating disorder. Well, here we got increased myelination. Hmm. Uh, we also get changes in the hippocampus in, 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 in arborization and in, in neurogenesis. So we're beginning to build a, 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 a circuit-based approach to understand that the brains of these animals are pretty messed up, but they have these social deficits. Uh, 
And then when we put the animals to, in social contact, we also looked at using uh, unbiased um, RNA-seq approaches. We looked at the transcriptome and we were able to show how different uh, activation of a variety of key molecular pathways were underpinning social behavior were also gone awry uh, in these animals. So, um, and around the same time, Elaine, Elaine Chow's group, uh, then at Caltech, now at UCLA, showed, um, again, social deficits in animals that are being given early life infection with the maternal immune activation protocol. And this correlated with the um, um, microbiome changes and she could reverse this with a specific probiotic. So again, the social uh, interaction and, 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 and uh, you know, she, she was able to cite our paper in, in that. And, and, and so that was really cool. Uh, and then since then, I'm, I'm, I'm just really, I want to know more about why just, the social brain so sensitive. So um, two things that I learned in, on this journey. One is that um, you can't do everything yourself and you need to collaborate with experts and experts get a bad name, uh, but it's good to have experts. And so I had a very uh, great postdoc in the lab, Roman Stilling. And when we got this data on the social brain, then, then we started reflecting from an evolutionary perspective about why would you need microbes in the lumen of your gut if you know for normal social interactions and so we started building a kind of a, a framework based around the, the 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 cortical development theories of robin dunbar where he showed uh, that social um, the elaboration of the cortex uh, is is greater in social animals maybe driving social behavior so we know uh, that so social behavior is driving brain development. We know the microbiome is driving brain development. We know the microbiome is changing social behavior. So is all of this just all linked up in some way uh, overall? And, um, and then we start thinking about, okay, and this is before pandemic, before people were, were, were much more attuned to this, but mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a social environment, your microbes are getting passed on much quicker to other people. You know, and so I started thinking about well, what's in it for the microbes? And uh, Rowan and I were we're we're, we're, we're going to write we were writing something on this, and then I uh, collaborated with um, a guy in Vanderbilt, Seth Bordenstein, and Seth is is Howard Hughes there, and is an evolutionary microbiologist, and I put some of these ideas to him. And he basically told me that I was completely wrong to even be thinking like this. And every now and then as a PI, it's really good to be told you're wrong. And why was I wrong? Well, I'm wrong because I'd forgotten, you know, something that's very fundamental to this whole story, which is that the microbes were there first. Our brains have never existed without microbial signals. Our mitochondria in our cells are just microbes that got lost. So we need to really reframe how we think about uh, the, the, the gut and the brain as if they're two separate things completely. And this is the problem with modern medicine. We love to compartmentalize the body. And, 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 uh, but there's never been a time uh, where, our, where brain development hasn't had these signals coming from it. And they've evolved into allowing for appropriate social behavior. And there are friends with benefits and our friends with social benefits. And so in, we wrote that article and it was kind of a kind of cool idea and it led to a lot of other thinking. Then you start to look across the animal kingdom. And then I collaborated with a zoologist, John Quinn here, as well as with Seth. And we started looking, well, if you start interfering with social dynamics or hierarchies across the animal kingdom, one of the things that keeps coming up is that you change the microbiome. So whether it's in a 
bumblebee in a hive or a baboon in the wild, these data exist. And uh, and vice versa, if you start to change the, the microbiome uh, by either diet or other approaches, from insects all the way to non-human primates, we begin to see uh, um, that the social behavior is the one thing that seems to be quite sensitive to this. So there's something about the social brain and that makes it sensitive to such signals. And yeah, I kind of, I haven't talked about disease on purpose yet, but, 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 but that's where it goes a little bit. But I, I want to, before I go into talk about disease, I want to talk about normal social behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How much of our decision-making, how much of our social decision, how much about how we eat and, and how much of our teamwork, our altruistic behavior, our cooperative behavior, our empathy, our, 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 our competitiveness is all driven by what's going on in our gut and how it's speaking to the brain in terms of normal behavior. Then when it goes wrong, what happens? Mm-hmm. So how do you start thinking about that normal behavior stuff? You know, one of the places where my mind goes naturally having a background in, in evolution and behavior is, you know, if the microbiome is inherently tied up with things like the state of not only your metabolism, but your immune system, then, you know, the, the compounds and the markers that a conspecific can perceive, which are connected to those uh, microbes, is going to contain information about the general physiological state and health of the other individual. So that might be used in, uh, you know, in terms of mating behavior. That might be used in terms of avoidance behavior if you want to avoid someone who's potentially contagious or something like that. Absolutely. I mean, social immunity is really important in this. And, and so, so we put all this together. And if, if, if your listeners are interested, it's in a review article we wrote in Science uh, probably two years ago now, uh, because we, we wanted to capture these exact same things. And of course, insects and, and, and mammals in the wild will have a different need for sensory. And so, so there's a sensory component to social. And some of these chemicals that are coming from bacteria can have really olfactory or various other cues uh, mm-hmm. to allow it. But I guess... The main thing, Nick, that I'm trying to get across is it's all connected. It's mm-hmm. all connected. And the microbes were there first. And that's really, you know, my mantra. Some of this, when I try to explain to people, like, you know, people always think it's something completely different. Um, and and what we don't know yet, and, and this is some of the studies I want to do, is really like if we took say a thousand people mm-hmm. and stratify them based on their social decision-making within a normal range. Could, could we look at what's going on in their microbiomes in terms of driving that? And then could we change that through diets? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it strikes me too, that animals are effectively sampling each other's microbiomes or at least portions of it in terms of the behaviors they display. Like, for example, if you just think about like affectionate behaviors that humans have, I mean, mm-hmm. like, why, why do we kiss each other? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that or how it evolved, but you are going to be sampling a portion of someone's microbiome and it probably contains real information about their, uh, what you might just think of as their physiological compatibility with you. 
Well, people are looking at that. And, and indeed, one of my colleagues uh, in Germany, that's one of her, 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 her you know, areas is looking at how couples uh, 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 interact. There's been studies on houses, when people move houses and how their microbiomes change and how, how, how when people start going into relationships and when people, you know, all of this is becoming, becoming, we're getting more data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be more complicated than we think. And it may not be as, you know, I guess the, the, the relative contribution of it to, to the specific behaviors versus other environmental factors or lifestyle factors that are, could be overriding some of this under normal basis. Is, is, it, it needs, needs some form of uh, investigation. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, when we talk about the social brain and microbiome, we do need to look a little bit more at, at normal aspects of social uh, uh, life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, um, and some of the work in the honeybees is just phenomenal because, you know, they're such a social insect. And, and you know, uh, if you, do, you know, some of the problems we're seeing in the world with, with, with pesticides and various other things that are impacting uh, mm. the microbiomes and, and the social behavior and various things. What, 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 is, uh, what are some of the salient uh, results from the honeybee work? I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, no, it, it's just this, this, this accumulating data now showing that if you mess up with the microbiome in honeybees, you mess up with social behavior. And if you mess up honeybee social behavior, it has a, long, a knock-on effect on biodiversity because of what they're doing, uh, uh, et cetera. So it's, it, it, it's building it into a planetary health framework that you wouldn't even interpret uh, uh, beforehand. And what, what's disturbing the microbiome? Well, you, you know, a lot of the work is experimental right now, but we, we do know that certain pesticides and various other things can do that. And mm-hmm. the, the, there's a whole environmental aspect to that. I mean, you know, based on that and based on, you know, the experiments you described using antibiotics in mice, you know, one naturally wonders what the effects of things like antibiotics in, in the, the food supply chain are having on humans. Yeah. And, and this is real, especially in the U.S., because, you know, the, the, there's a higher tolerability for antibiotics within the food chain in the U.S. than there is in, in Europe. Um, for example, but um, Marty Blazer, who's now at Rutgers, has written extensively about this in the context of metabolic health. And, you know, he's, he's uh, data in animals and then he's human data. It, it, he basically thinks that the obesity epidemic is driven by uh, early life exposure to subclinical levels of um, uh, antibiotics uh, uh, overall, and that we're missing microbes uh, overall. That was the title of his book uh, about this. But he, you know, he also shows, you know, and, and the correlations, but correlations of antibiotic prescription rates in the U.S. Uh, on a county by county level, and it maps over the obesity levels like almost oh, wow. verbatim, you know. And so there's become a bigger appreciation. Um, of the importance of the microbiome in, in all aspects of health, particularly metabolic and cardiometabolic health. The other thing that's informing this is studies where people are going out and looking at the microbes of ancestral uh, um, uh, tribes. So going to Tanzania, and there you can see the microbiome is very diverse, largely driven by the hunter-gatherer uh, lifestyle that they have. The gathering part is often neglected in this. It's, mm. They have to eat a lot of fiber and a lot of grains and a lot of things. Uh, and so, so, so that's... Uh, and then if you go to more agrarian uh, c- uh, communities like in Malawi or Venezuela, you see the, what, what farming, introduction of farming has done. 
to the microbiome and you start to see in a diminution. And then in a Western world, whether it's in the US or here in Europe, um, with the introduction of processed food, the increased stressful lifestyle, the antibiotic exposure, the environmental pollution around us, you ha- we have an extinction of these microbes that our ancestors have and work from the Sonnenbergs, Justin and Erica Sonnenberg at Stanford for, for, for some years now have been really highlighting how this could have long-term consequences because we don't know if we can get them back, you know, is what's gone, gone. And, you, you know, you can eat as much fiber or whatever good food as you want if you don't have the microbes there to, to actually get the, you know, good stuff from it, uh, then it becomes a problem. And mm-hmm. uh, but, but, but that enables us to start looking at, uh, so they've done studies on, on these, you know, microbes and been able to link it to overall health. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a, a, a skeptic might say, well, well, of course, a hunter-gatherer's microbiome is different. Every, you know, virtually every aspect of their physiology is probably different because their entire lifestyle from diet to activity level is different. But to connect it with some of the experimental work you talked about at the beginning, we at least have rodent evidence that yeah. a transplantation of microbiomes can be causally related to at least some some changes in physics. Absolutely. And and that's and that's where we want to go. And and what our lab is doing is like a lot of the work is being done in metabolic health or immune health uh, and gut health. We want to bring it to brain health. And that's really our, our, our like you know the, the, the different perspective that we have uh, on this uh, overall. Now um, I think if the, if there's more to talk about normal animal behavior and its relationship to the microbiome, we should definitely do that. But some of the results that you're describing with respect to social deficits naturally make one think about things like autism. Yeah. So, but we also, and I'll come on to autism and I have no, but, 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 but we also should remember that there are other disorders of sociability besides autism. Mm-hmm. Social, social anxiety disorder mm-hmm. uh, is something that we're studying right now a lot and they're quite intrigued on. And, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating disorder. Um, and uh, it is really a, you know, more common than people think it is. Uh, and we have new data to show that the microbiome is different in people with social anxiety disorder. Social deficits are a core symptom of schizophrenia uh, and, and really are quite hard to treat uh, with antipsychotic medication overall. Um, so, and social uh, disorder, uh, social anxiety, anxiety aspects can, can, can be at a subclinical level with, with general shyness or general social awkwardness overall. But let's go to autism uh, because, it, you know, it, it is uh, probably one of the most studied uh, areas in relation to the microbiome. It also is one of the most emotive uh, and one of the most, um, that can be the most challenging to, to, discuss and manage expectations of, of, of individuals overall uh, on it. My take on it so far uh, on the data where we are is that um, there seems to be some very clear relationship between the microbiome in early life and uh, the natural history of certain aspects, symptoms of autism. Now, the early experiments in this field were coming from, for example, a Sydney Feingold's lab in, in UCLA, uh, where they showed that vancomycin as an antibiotic might have some beneficial effects in, in autism. They did some very small scale human studies, promising. There's been lots of anecdotal data uh, 
somewhat promising. And then in the when people started measuring the microbiome in a compendium-like way, just what microbes are different in autism versus not. Uh, the, the early studies were largely small, heterogeneous, didn't really take into account diet, were a bit of a mess, to be honest. You couldn't really interpret anything. Yeah, there's changes, but what do they mean and are they consistent? And I recall, that's probably almost a decade ago or, or, or a good number of years ago, looking at one of these better papers in the autism field that was emerging to show that there were links between microbial changes and a subset of, in, of individuals in this larger study with autism. And, uh, but the good thing in the study was they had very good dietary data. And what the dietary data showed was that it wasn't that there was a link between autism and the microbiome, but it was a link between what these kids ate and they ate a lot of chia seeds. Now, I didn't even know what a chia seed was, but chia seeds are, 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 are like a superfood that are often in smoothies uh, and used a lot by autistic uh, kids and their families. So, so that was just a clear example of we need to be very careful uh, with this field about where, where it's going. Where things have got exciting is work coming from Arizona, where they've they've shown using a kind of a fecal transplant approach that I that I alluded to, uh, but but they developed a consortia of bacteria and they showed in a, in a again a small enough study some years ago. This is Rosa Cramick Brown's work where she's really uh, along with Jim Adams. They showed that uh, when they gave a fecal transplant to a group of kids with with autism that their gut and their social uh, problems uh, resolved uh, somewhat and that this persisted up to four years. So that was kind of a, it's a small study. It's not placebo controlled. It has, it has you know, it has issues, but it, it is exciting. And then the, the animals from that, um, Sarkis Masmanian's group at Caltech took the microbes from these um, infants, or well, they were now children, and then sh- um, showed that they um, could induce autistic-like behaviors when they transplanted them into mice, uh, germ-free mice, and allowed them to, to breed for one generation. Now, this study's got some um, kickback because people felt that they were over-interpreting some of the statistics and over-interpreting some of the things. But, you know, there was lots of really intriguing data in this paper overall. It did show that the microbes from kids with autism induce different effects on brain, on behavior, on the metabolome, on immunity in these in, in, compared to those from norm, neurotypical kids. So for me, it was quite, you know, it was kind of exciting overall. And then just two weeks ago, Sarkis's lab uh, showed, uh, again, based on our work on myelination and others, they showed that, that a metabolite from, that, that was identified in these kids could, could also uh, induce autistic-like symptoms. Uh, in 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 mouse behavior, uh, and the question is, you know, how how real is social behavior in a mouse for for, for humans? Mm-hmm. And then they had a paper, a proof of concept paper in Nature Medicine, uh, showing that a, a new compound that it basically mops up uh, these metabolites that basically quenches them in the gut uh, was having beneficial effects. So the story is is, is really there. 
Oh yeah, and then I, I will do my one minor pivot just because in the interest of, 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 of clarity is a large study from Australia that came out about three months ago um, where they looked at, from a genetics group there which looked at the microbiome in really good detail. It's a really good characterization study and they looked at food intake and they looked at food behavior and they looked at different aspects of eating. And what they showed that the microbiome changes in these kids was driven by picky eating in these kids and wasn't specific to the actual behavioral changes per se, but were, you know, so, so the press interpreted this and the press releases uh, allow them to interpret this, that there's no relationship between the microbiome and, 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 and autism. But it's actually more, more nuanced because we don't know what, what led these kids to be picky eaters and, and what led their neurodevelopmental trajectories. And so it is complex and it is gene environments, microbiome and gene interactions that are going to be at play. Um, but, you know, we, we need to kind of understand this in a different way. So our research is very much looking at early life microbiome changes. And we've shown this now germ-free um, in animals born um, by cesarean section because C-section changes the microbiome and by giving antibiotics, maternal antibiotics to mice, all three of them, the one behavior we see that, that comes out of time and time again is social deficits. So there's something about the social brain. So why wouldn't a disorder like autism, which is very spectral, very distinct, the, 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 why wouldn't it be also uh, involving how the microbiome is shaping, talking to the brain at key window, key critical windows? Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I hope you didn't want a short answer. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fascinating stuff. So, you know, so you mentioned, you know, autism is just one form of, of social disorder. Um, and there's many other uh, afflictions that people have that might be related to the microbiome, I suspect. Um, so when we think about things like social anxiety and depression, what are we starting to learn there? Yeah. So in social anxiety, we're, we are finding that there are distinct changes in certain microbes and we're, we're getting this ready for publication now. And we're doing the, 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 the experiments in animals to look at the mechanisms and underlying that. In depression, it's a little bit complicated, again, because a lot of the early studies are heterogeneous using not the best uh, tools. But we'll put, um, we, were, we were really interested in this some years ago where we wanted to see what if you took a bunch of people with clinical depression, and uh, this was in collaboration with my colleague, Ted Dynan, who was the chair of psychiatry, clinically depressed individuals versus healthy individuals took their microbiome. What we found was there were the changes between them. It wasn't a big number. So, you know, we all the caveats with that. And then uh, there was a lack of diversity, a reduction in diversity in the depressed individuals. So kind of like almost accelerated aging in their microbiome, if you want. Uh, and um, what we did is we took them, them microbes and we transplanted them uh, as we're prone to do, uh, in this case, to rats. And to much to our surprise, the um, rats develop depression-like symptoms. So this was kind of really cool because it helps us with causality. Mm. It helps us really answer, you know, now, how do you, how do you know a rat's depressed? Well, you know, that's a, that's a, a really hard question. But we look at key endophenotypes of depression. So anhedonia, the ability to experience pleasure. 
microbes uh, uh, when, 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 when the rats had taken microbes from depressed people, they had uh, less interest in sweetened sugar uh, compared to normal animals. Um, they were more anxious when you put them on a maze where they can go and explore um, uh, open arms or stay closed. They, they stayed in the closed arms. We looked at their immune, uh, inflammatory profile uh, and we know inflammation is also present in depression and we were able to change completely their inflammatory profile. So it's remarkable. And this has been reproduced by a group in China. It's been reproduced by a group in Canada. The uh, Chemic group is working on this in the context of anxiety. And so, you know, it really helps us develop a kind of a causal relationship. So that's one of the things. The other thing and that's happened in the depression field is work from Belgium, uh, where they looked at a thousand people. So that's good, good size to start with. So because one of the big problems here is all about sample size. Mm-hmm. And they looked at those that were depressed and they found that they had um, a specific change in their microbiome. They, they talked about enterotypes, which is kind of just uh, subtyping the, the microbiome in different ways. And um and they went one step further to show that the potential of that microbes to make certain neuroactive chemicals that could potentially get to the brain. So they were able to identify which bacteria make which chemicals. Um, and they were able to show in depression that there was a reduction in certain bacteria and an enrichment in others. They were able to verify these data in another thousand people in, 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 in Netherlands and then in, in a very small sample of really depressed people in a hospital in Belgium. So that's kind of neat. Uh, and we're collaborating with them to do more, uh, to do more uh, mechanistic work on where, where this is going. Um, and I think what we're beginning to see really is that the microbiome uh, could be targeted uh, for um, mental health benefits. And um, and then that's why we coined the term here in Cork, we coined the term psychobiotic, which is basically a way to um, target the microbiome for mental health be- benefits. Not to be confused with your psychedelic, but psychobiotic mm-hmm. is, is something that we're, we're, we're uh, very interested in. Well, so um, there's something really interesting I'm thinking about here, which is, you know, you, you've mentioned, I mean, everything that, when I think about everything that you've mentioned, you know, the microbiome can have, it seems, <clears throat> effects on the brain through, through a variety of different pathways. You know, we've been talking about things like depression, anxiety, and, and these things that involve psychoactive effects. There are, as people may know, there's um, a lot of serotonin used in the gut in the enteric nervous system. And <clears throat> I wonder if, you know, we've got anything from selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors to serotonergic, serotonergic psychedelics often have in people um, gut gut-related side effects. And I'm wondering if the uh, microbiome itself can be affected by some of the psychoactive drugs that people are consuming by the millions. Absolutely. We've done these studies in animals and, um, um, and characterized it well. Initially, with, um, we were interested in antipsychotics. Uh, so uh, atypical antipsychotics are widely used. 1% of the population in the Western world are on them which is quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not, they're not just used to treat uh, schizophrenia, but they're used to treat um, many aspects of depression and bipolar depression uh, as well. So, but one of their side effects is, is um, 
metabolic dysregulation and uh, obesity and yeah. people just just balloon uh, and so we were interested in looking at could this be driven by the microbiome or the microbiome gut brain axis and so we showed in 2013 that olanzapine was mediating its effects through uh, well that was affecting the microbiome we followed it up with a paper where we in um, antibiotic target targeted um, animals that this didn't happen as much. So, you know, we're really getting to that, to that, to that level. And then uh, Sophia Cosoto, when she was a PhD student in the lab, looked at seven or eight other, seven or eight other psychotropic drugs. So including mood stabilizers and uh, SSRIs and uh, showed that they had quite a profound effect on the microbiome. And just as we were getting that ready for publication, a paper from, uh, Germany came out in nature with over, you know, 1000 drugs in it. Um, so, uh, but it showed very clearly that a quarter of all drugs in pharmacies today are having deleterious effects on your microbiome. And in the drug class they highlighted was antipsychotics. So it was really cool. Uh, so, in relation so- to psychedelics uh, or, or that, I, I don't know, is there that much data, but I know people have put forward this idea. Uh, Kim Kuiper's lab has, has talked about this in some of her reviews. So, um, so that's super interesting. A lot of the pharmaceuticals that we're using are affecting the microbiome. It's not so surprising that that's happening to some extent, but it's maybe surprising that it's happening so widely. So just to give people a more concrete sense of this, you're saying you've done experiments where you give rodents an antipsychotic. There is some sort of downstream metabolic effect, and the size of that effect is diminished if the animal is taking antibiotics. Yeah. And and what and what are those effects typically for like an antipsychotic? So this weight gain, it's it's accumulation of 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 uh, uh, of, of uh, fat depots. Um, it, it can lead to diabetes at a really high level, but we in our animals we don't get that far. Um, it's it's it you know it was really it, it really surprising data, and it's it's really a clinical problem. But but now there's a whole area of research called pharmacomicrobiomics. So looking at so you know I, I trained as a neuropharmacologist. So 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 I'm interested when I when I when I, when I would teach, I would tell students that you need to think about pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Now, if I'm teaching, I say you need to say pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacomicrobiomics because that that's really important to how drugs are impacting the microbiome and how the microbiome is impacting drugs. Because we just also published a paper showing that the uh, bioavailability of this antipsychotic olanzapine was also affected if we wiped out the microbiome uh, or we gave a, a, pro, a probiotic. So there was differential effects there. And it's it's really exciting. Again, not so much yet in neuroscience or, or, or in psychiatry and neurology fields, yes, but in oncology, right today, people starting a trial, people are starting a, a treatment for melanoma will take uh, checkpoint inhibitors. The efficacy of them checkpoint inhibitors will be dependent on their microbiome composition. And that is really, really dramatic. And so that... The, the question we're also interested in, this is work my colleague Jerry Clark and I are doing uh, right now into the future, we're looking at the side effects of some of these chemotherapeutic agents, uh, brain fog, cognitive changes, social effects, you know, could these be driven by the, the, a bit what these drugs are doing on, on the microbiome? And, you know, it's opening up a whole new potential in, in that regard. 
And what was the number that you cited for the percentage of drugs in a typical approximately pharmacy? 20, approximately 25% of a quarter of all drugs in pharmacies in this paper where they looked at 1,000 drugs. Now, this was all in vitro. So it wasn't, you know, we were doing our stuff in animals. They mm-hmm. just did, I mean, you know, but but they went for the, you know, we had nine drugs. They had 1,000, you know, mm-hmm. so, so they went on, 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 on breath uh, yeah. overall. And um, it's really exciting to think that, but it's also worrying. So, so the question is for any drug now, is, is it side effects could be due to collateral effects on the microbiome or could its efficacy be enhanced by, you know, and so understanding, and, 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 and this is also relevant to foodstuffs because foods, most of them are chemicals, not a million miles, you know? So if you take polyphenols in your, which are all the color in your vegetables, if you take them into your diet, they get broken down into flavonoids and then into other, uh, and they get broken down by the microbiome into mm-hmm. other chemicals that can have other effects. And so, so you know, it, it is something that, that that's receiving a lot more attention uh, now. We're also interested in environmental chemicals like pesticides and what they're doing and how they're being taken in and how they're been acting on the microbiome and could that have a long-term effect uh, overall? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, as I like to remind people, everything is connected, I guess. Mm-hmm. It would be, um, so it'll take me a second to build this up, but um, it would be shocking to me if there weren't some drugs that weren't um, directly metabolized by some, some microbes that can be in the microbiome. And I wonder you know, if there are any clear examples where, say, you give drugs to uh, to a group of people, or you give drugs to a group of animals, and if there are multiple cohorts of animals in terms of microbiome composition, are some of those drugs being made active by some of those co- cohorts? Oh, so like, you, like anything yeah. like that? Oh yeah, no, no, but, but but people have been using pro drugs for years, so that they can be broken down in, in the treatment of of IBD and various the variety of drugs that are that are that, that they use microbial uh, metabolism as part of their to delivery device because yeah. you, you wait till they get to the to 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 to, to the small intestine or whatever else, and and so that 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 is already happening in pharmaceutical sciences. Interesting. So so, I mean, that would imply that sometimes when a drug does or does not work. Um, it may or may not be because of uh, uh, the drug per se, but because you know maybe the active ingredient wasn't there in some people because they didn't have the microbes for it. Yeah, I, you know, well, it could be, it could be, and um, that's definitely what's happening in some of these cancer treatments now. Uh, so, what is that? So, like in, in with these newer checkpoint inhibitor treatments in cancer, if you don't have the certain microbes, the, these um, uh, drugs are not working. Mm. Interesting. And that, that's probably more to do with the immune system, though. That's probably more to do with, with immune tolerance and various other things. And so what they're doing, there's a study out last year where they took a fecal transplant and were able to change the microbiome and then be able to, to get the drug to be working. Interesting. One of the things, you know, one of the common denominators based on all the things that we've touched on so far seems to be the diversity of microbiomes. So within an individual. So, you know, you talked about the differences between... Yeah. Uh, people like us and hunter-gatherers. You talked about old versus young. And it seems in almost every case, like a more diverse microbiome is better and a more homogenous one is going to have... With with one exception. Mm. One big exception. In early life. So in early life, the ideal microbiome is the least diverse. Hmm. uh, Because 
Um, so we know this from studies where we compare vaginally born breastfed infants compared to C-section born uh, bottle fed infants, for example, at two extremes there, you know. And um, what we want in early life is we want a lot of the bacteria, the good bacteria that are just there. We don't want diversity. We just want things that are just going to be doing the good stuff. So we have these bifidogenic bacteria that are there to harvest uh, the goodness out of breast milk, for example. Mm. And so that's an example where um, less diversity can be. But you're right. On the whole, as we age, then uh, you want, uh, like in all aspects of life, diversity is really important. Mm-hmm. But, but, but that's just an interesting exception in early life. So, you know, on, on this subject that you just alluded to, when you think about an infant child and their ability to metabolize uh, the natural food that they're going to consume, which is breast milk, how much of that is, it sounds like a lot of that is microbiome connected and how, how much of the infant's microbiome is being inherited through the birth process itself? Oh, this is a great question. Um, so two, two parts there. Let me deal with the breast milk first, because it was, it was really surprising to me many years ago when I learned that um, human breast milk is among the most complex uh, of all types of milk, milk that there can be in the mammalian world, about 20 times more complex than, than that of um, bovine milk, which we use in formulas. And so evolution doesn't give us complexity without some reasons, usually. Uh, but what was really surprising was that, 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 that these sugars, that these complex sugars, these human milk oligosaccharides that, 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 that I'm really alluding to when I talk about complexity, that these sugars cannot be broken down by the, We have no capacity to break them down in the body. Mm. So why would evolution do that? And the reason that it, evolution is doing that is because the microbes were there first, and the microbes are there, are doing that job. And so microbes take these uh, human milk oligosaccharides and break them down into key chemicals uh, like sialic acid. Sialic acid is a really important part of brain development. So there, that is really intriguing data. And it may, and I put all caveats out there, but it may uh, reflect why breastfed infants in large-scale population studies uh, show a little higher IQ uh, than uh, bottle-fed infants overall population-wide. It also is in line with work that Jeff Gordon's group have been doing in sub-Saharan Africa, where they've been looking at um, in moms that are not able to produce this milk, that there is a, a less of the sialic acid being formed in the infants. And then there's stunted growth and cognitive decline and all of that being driven through this lack of a prebiotic, which is essentially what these human milk oligosaccharides are. And they've done elegant work over the years, both in the human population, but also in mouse models and uh, pig models to really show this interrelationship between the microbiome um, and the diet in driving brain developmental changes. And it it offers, you know, huge uh, ramifications for our public global public health policies uh, in terms of how how we manage that. So uh, it is quite, 
you know, it's, it's you know, uh, we work a lot with industry in Ireland. Our funding model in for research is, is very much an applied uh, aspect. So we often work with industry and often these industries are trying to make, you know, recapitulate human breast milk in some way. And it's just such a hard job, you know, because nature has done it so well uh, for, 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 for what it's doing. Um, and we have relatively low breastfeeding rates in Ireland. So it's one of these things we really need to, to get across. Regarding the other part of your question, which was about uh, vertical transmission or, um, yeah, I think, I think this is a really important question and, and we, we, we now, uh, you know, we, we, we know a lot more about this. I like to refer to, so basically during pregnancy, the mom's microbiome changes. It, it adopts to uh, the uh, needs of the mom metabolically in every other way, but it's really getting ready to be handed over at birth as a kind of a birthday present to the infant mm. to basically start programming the infant's immune system. For the most part, the infant is thought to be sterile and neutral and gets the microbes as it emerges through the birth canal. And when in that, then this is kind of a really good example of potential epigenetic modifications that can occur because we get vertical transmission from, from one generation to the next. The activation of the immune system starts pretty rapidly. And therefore, uh, anything that upsets this, such as being born by C-section, which you basically have a... Well, you kind of drop the the baton in a, in an evolutionary relay race, uh, and 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 uh, or antibiotics, uh, uh, not breastfeeding. All of these things will will factor in relatively to change these early life microbes that will program the developing immune system and body overall. So we are, you know, one of the, 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 the that's one of the, the, the other things um, from a public health perspective, it, there are certain countries where C-section rates have just gone skyrocketing. Brazil is, you know, parts of Brazil is 70%, China, but even in Ireland, it's doubled in, 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 in 30 years. Uh, parts of the US, it's, it's gone really, really high. And so the question is, is, um, you know, what are the consequences of that? And so we, as I mentioned earlier, we worked on our animal model of this and show that there are enduring effects. But we just published a paper, which is another one of these papers that, you know, take it with the, all of the health warnings. It's it's a small study, but it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And we, we got funding for it, um, where we took 40, I was going to say normal, but Irish medical students and uh, stratified them based on their mode of delivery. So we put 40 C-section of 40 vaginally born and uh, we bring them into the lab and we have really good ethical ways of stressing people. Uh, And so we found that those born by C-section respond to acute stress from an immunological and behavioral point of view, much greater. We also then wanted to look at chronic stress and this is before the pandemic. So we wanted to see, you know, how could we, if, if, how could we, if people were born by C-section, would they have a different response to chronic stress? And, but we had to do this in an ethical way. And the best way we had as educators is uh, submit our students to exams. And so we can chart a variety of biomarkers over the examination period. And we found, for example, like the Cohen's perceived stress scale, which is a very well validated uh, uh, marker of stress, was really higher uh, over the exam period in those born by C-section versus not. Now, 
again, this is many other things could be at play here. We mm-hmm. don't know why they had to have C-section. This was, you know, some time ago, but it, our animal data backs it up very nicely and, and shows that the microbiome is what's playing because in the animal studies, we could reverse these uh, changes, these social deficits by fecal transplants and by feeding with bifidobacteria. Mm-hmm. So these two questions you ask are really relevant to this perinatal critical windows idea. Because in neuroscience, we talk about critical windows a lot, from visual development to, 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 to sensory and, co- and cognitive development. But there's probably also a critical window in our microbiome that we really need to watch and how these two talk to each other is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, based on everything you've said and just all of the interconnectedness here, you know, have we just, have you ever thought about just how much, you know, in modernity, we've essentially just completely removed ourselves from the ecological context that our species evolved in for so long? You know, how does that make you feel in terms of your optimism or pessimism for our species? Because when you look at all of the chronic conditions, whether metabolic or psychiatric, and all, you know, how much of this is just due to us, you know, basically inventing our way out of the the ecological context that all of this stuff was was formed in it's a great question and i do think about it in in different ways one is in the last two years what we've just done mm-hmm. you know just look at what we've done at least here we we've had multiple lockdowns social isolation uh you know changed our whole social behavior um then cleanliness and and uh, uh, all of the effects we're having on our microbiome, uh, even when we do. So we're affecting our microbiomes and we're affecting our social behavior. There will be many PhD thesis in the future on this from a, from a sociological and other ways. Um, so I, 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 I do reflect on this uh, in that regard. Am I optimistic about us as a society? Uh, yeah, I am because I think, you know, um, we are still a social species and we we want to talk and people are want to listen to you, to you uh nick and so i think you know um yes we're doing things to damage our world but we've been doing it you know for centuries and we'll continue to and we'll continue to have wars and we'll continue to have pandemics and various things uh, and we will prevail we are living longer we are living probably healthier we're just understanding this more um, but as long as we remember that the microbes were there first and we need to look after them. So one of the last things I want to ask you about is given all of your experience and, and everything that you've learned, how has that affected how you look after your own microbiome? Uh, uh, yeah. Everyone asked me that. Uh, yeah, no, um, it does make me more aware um, uh, of, of, of what I'm doing. I'm also you know, I, do I take probiotics? No. Do I, um, you know, I, I, I do, you know, my, my lifestyle, well, it also changed a lot over the pandemic, but I used to be on a plane like three times a week and, you know, you're running around and it's very hard to be looking after your gut if you're in an airport all the time, I can tell yeah. you that. So, so, so with the pandemic, it got me to reflect a lot more on my own health as well and understanding what I need to, 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 to appreciate with it. And with my kids, as my kids get older, I'm trying to foster in them. The one thing I do that people always want to know, well, what does he do? Like, like I could say, you know, the, 
you know, uh, there are things that I can tell you are good for your microbes, uh, but I don't necessarily do them. But the thing I do do is I take fermented foods, which we have no culture of in this country in Ireland at all. But I take milk kefir uh, and uh, try and have it every day. And the days I, I, I you know, the days I, I, and I haven't had it the last few days because I, 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 I put what, it what in. What is it? Milk kefir. Kefir? Kefir. Yeah, what is that? K-E-F-I-R. So this is uh, a fermented uh, grains that you, uh, uh, it's a ball of bacteria and yeast. Uh, and uh, it's one of the three Ks. Uh, I, 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 the kombucha, kimchi, and kefir are like the three fermented foods that people talk about uh, overall. Why I, why I mention fermented foods is they don't cost anything except the, the what you put them in. So you, you can have water kefir or milk kefir. So if you, Buy milk, that that's the only thing that they, and you ferment it overnight and uh, you take it every day. And it, 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 it's really, um, it's really good for your microbes. And we've done studies in animals where we've given kefir to some mice with autism and they have better social behavior. Mice with autism related symptoms, I have to be. Uh, and, uh, and, and we've shown that if they have positive effects on stress. We've done a study in, in, in students where we've really ramped up their levels of kefir and fermented foods and um, also their levels of fiber. And we've shown that their stress levels and their sleep quality gets much better. So, but the good thing about it is that I, it's a solution that you, when, you know, we can offer to people that might benefit from it most, you know, not everyone wants to solutions that are going to be in whole foods. Mm -hmm. So you need to come up with, with, you know, for certain populations, you need to democratize. We need to democratize gut brain access health. And so that's why I also like to tell people about it. Uh, What does it taste like? It is like, so the, here's, I, I got a trick on this. So, it, so my, my wife used to like it a lot and I, and I was like, Oh God, I just, you know, the, the, but um, so it tastes a bit like uh, buttermilk or sour, you know, it, it's a tangy flavor, but what, what I do is I, I ferment it overnight and then I leave it in the fridge for, so, so you drink it cold and then I put in some other yogurt uh, flavored yogurt in with it, other people put honey or some, you know, and then it tastes like the yogurt just with a tang. It's a tangy, uh, you know, thing flavor on it. It's really good. It's really good. I see. And when you say you ferment it overnight, like what, what exactly does that involve? It means you take milk and you put it into the milk and it's really, uh, it, it, it ferments the milk. I see. Okay. So you're adding something, you're buying something that you add to milk and basically just let it sit for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you keep it again. Like, so, so it becomes your own. People have these, these, uh, like they do with kombucha, they have their own mothers. They, 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 so, you, so you keep the, the, these kefir grains and you put them into the next one of milk and they grow and they grow and then you give it to your friends and then you I pass see. it on. A, and then it becomes, you know, it, it travels with you like that, you know, copy of Ulysses you'll never read, you know. <laughs> I see. And does this only work with um, like animal milk? Is there a particular. Like- it works best with with it does work best with with uh, uh, with animal milk. I don't think it works so much with plant based uh, milks to the same level. But there are other there are other fermented plant drinks and other fermented. I, I just think fermented foods. You know, people think of of them as sauerkraut and and uh, things that are not that flavorsome and pickles and stuff. But the the the, the they're a really good way of really giving bacteria back to your gut. 
interesting. And I have data now in animals and and, and humans, so I'm really and we're we we you know I, I we have a really nice team now working on this uh, to do more comprehensive studies, and we've just got some funding uh, from the US to to look at this, and it's really exciting to to in humans to see you know uh, the temporal effects of it, what's it changing, and how is it changing in individuals uh, versus uh, otherwise. The other thing that in relation to practical aspects is is in circadian rhythms and uh, understanding the relationship between sleep and the microbes. And and so, see, my microbes, so it it may not just be what you eat or what your microbes eat, but when your microbes eat. So my microbes are just so, you know, they, they love carbs. They just do, and they're you know, but you know, so they, they, but it, it, it's one of these things that personally that I I, I think uh, some of the beneficial effects of intermittent fasting, time restricted eating, etc., is now being seen to be driven by the microbiome, and we're we're really investigating this at the brain level, at the level of suprachiasmatic nucleus, and in, in terms of the clock uh, signaling and trying to understand this, because uh, I think again everything being connected, but sleep and the microbiome is is really relevant and. Uh, that's why I don't miss my jet lag days uh, at all. Interesting. Um, is there any, I mean, I'm sure you've got a bunch, but what's what's like one area right now that you guys are actively pursuing that you think is going to be really exciting just in terms of giving us some interesting results in the near future? Okay. So we didn't, talk, so we, 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 we I pretended to talk to you about the microbiome for this last hour and a half, uh, but I actually only talked about the bacterium. Mm. Uh, and so, so one of the things I'm really excited about right now is uh, an area of the microbiome called uh, driven by bacteriophages. Bacteriophages are viruses that target bacteria. So, what if you have bacteria you don't want? And you know, one of the best ways is to get viruses to selectively kill them. And we, you know, we, we, we viruses have got a bad rep now with COVID, but like not all viruses are bad. And so this is a really exciting way. And that's something that we're working on right now uh, in our animal models to show that maybe some of the effects of stress, you know, could be alleviated through this type of mechanism. Really precision, interesting, it's going to change a little bit how we think about these things. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Interesting. But the basic idea is if you've got certain bacteriophages that are adapted to infecting and killing specific species of bacteria, you could you could leverage that to alter uh, an animal's microbiome in a, in a beneficial way. Yeah, yeah. Or you take them like one of the experiments we're doing is we've taken the microbes before you get stressed or before you go through an, a negative effect, and, uh, and, 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 and you take the bacteriophages from there, and then you put them back in at the end and, 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 and make sure that they're able to, to, to work again and, and be able to counteract some of the effects. Interesting. Well, we covered a lot of ground. John, uh, thank you for your time. And uh, if you have any, any parting thoughts you want to leave people with, uh, go for it. Um, not really. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's been a real pleasure, Nick, and, and thanks for, 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 for chatting with me uh, overall. I guess, you know, the things I like to remind people is that um, unlike your genome, which you not a lot you can do about except blame your parents and your grandparents, uh, your microbiome is potentially modifiable. And that gives you great potential agency. But we have a long way to go. There's a lot of snake oil out there. Watch out first. Look for evidence-based. Look for where there's data to support claims and data to support things. And if someone is telling you something, be careful. That's kind of where I'm leaving.